Please be seated. In April of 1993, the FBI and the ATF ended a 51-day siege on the Mount Carmel compound of the Branch Davidians outside Waco, Texas. By the end of the violent and bloody exchange, nearly 100 people, all followers of the cult's charismatic leader, David Koresh, had died, a quarter of them young children. In the wake of the siege, information came out about David Koresh's leadership and behavior. Only 34 years old, he was known to his followers to be a gifted interpreter of scripture, particularly of the book of Revelation. He was also a pedophile and a polygamist with spiritual brides as young as 14 and untold numbers of children by his many conquests. But despite his unsavory character, he managed to convince scores of people that following him into death was not only appropriate, but it was good and a holy thing to do. I remember watching this story unfold as a teenager and being fascinated by the idea of the Branch Davidians and their commitment to Koresh that cost not only their own lives, but the lives of their children. He believed that he was the Messiah, and they believed it too. He wasn't the first. In 1978, Jim Jones pulled nearly a thousand people down his rabbit hole, and when faced with interlopers from out the outside world into their insular and twisted community, at his command they drank cyanide-laced flavorade which they also fed to over 300 children, leading to the largest loss of non-combatant American life until September 11, 2001. I was in high school when the Waco siege was taking place, and I remember reading the sensationalist media portrayals of David Koresh. It was easy to make him a monster. He was, by all counts, one by, him, by his own making. The same thing could be said of Jim Jones. His proclivities were suspect, as were the motives for his starting the people's temple to begin with. The question that seemed to be on the minds of so many people regarding both these men was, how could people follow them? How could they believe in the garbage they prophesied? As an awkward, self-conscious, religiously inclined teenager, understanding this kind of blind following was honestly not completely outside my realm of imagination. Imagine with me for a moment that you too are slightly awkward, socially misfit. It's hard for you to belong. Imagine you're looking for an appealing set of rules to tell you how to do the right thing. Imagine that you, too, want a community to call family. The world is full of people like this. I found my family here. I didn't need another one. But there is a world full of people that don't, people that desperately want to belong. And Koresh and Jones and other li others like them take advantage of that desperation. They use a thin layer of charisma and charm mixed with twisted logic to make what they are offering seem palatable, then morally right, 
than necessary for life. For people without people, for people without a strong anchor or a moral compass, for people without the self-confidence to think clearly for themselves, or for people who have not had a promise of love in their lives, what Koresh and Jones were selling was mighty appealing. So that question didn't bother me as a teenager. The question that bothered me then, and that I still kind of turn around in my mind and have for decades, was not how could people believe in Jim Jones. It was what makes their belief so different from mine. Jim Jones said, drink this. And the people did. Jesus said, drink this. And we the people do. David Koresh said, I am the son of God, and his followers believed him. Jesus said, I am the son of God, and we believe it. So where do we draw the line? How is it that we know we are not crazy cult followers, or as Tim mentioned last week that some of our detractors have called us vampiric cannibalists, where is our litmus test to tell us that we are, what we are following is the right thing or the right one to follow? Surely there is more than just the test of time that draws the very clear line in the sand between Christian and cult. This is the fourth week that our lectionary has offered us words about the body and the blood. As is evident, evident by the liturgical emphasis we place on it every single week up here, these are vital concepts in our theology. They are a big piece of what draws us together. We eat the body, we drink the blood, we become the body, we do it in remembrance of the one that gave life for us. In the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, which we don't read for this week, we get two little words that have been variously interpreted, often to uphold political agendas. But I want to explore them a little today as well. Choose life, it says, in order that you might live. Choose life. I believe it's here somewhere between the consecrated elements and the imperative to choose the things that are life-giving that we best understand who we are as a people called into God's work and not a people called into some dangerous falsehood. Choose life. It means lots of things, and among them it means we are called by God to look for opportunities for thriving for ourselves, for others. It means we choose community over isolation. It means we choose uplifting over tearing down. It means we hug rather than hit. It means we give instead of take. Choosing life means that when a choice is in front of us that is particularly difficult, we might look to scripture, we might choose the path that draws the kingdom closer, even if it's not particularly practical. Choosing life means we look to our baptismal vows for guidance on how to seek justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God. To set up a dichotomy like Jim Jones or Jesus, 
makes choices for us, well-meaning, clear-thinking adults, seem pretty obvious, right? That's not a hard one. But what happens when the choices are a little less obvious? Take the promotion, spend more time with my family. $3 for a latte, $3 to the homeless man. Fight to get the kids out of bed and get them to church, or just let everyone sleep in again. Stand up to the coworker telling racist jokes. Sit with that really awkward kid who's kind of frustrating but really could use a friend. Ignore the latest salacious neighborhood gossip. The good, right, moral choice is often obvious but hard to take. The path to life is clear, but taking the path can be much, much harder in the face of these daily decisions. Choose life, we say. Sometimes we can, and sometimes we struggle. What Koresh and Jones and others like them said was, you need to fulfill these duties and these roles to please me, to satisfy me, and if you do, I will love you and that will make you worthy. What Christ says is, you need to do these things to lift up the body to support one another. I will love you regardless. I always have, and I always will. David Koresh said, I am the Son of God. You will obey me, or I will punish you. Jesus said, I am the Son of God that loves you without exception. If you listen to me, you will find your life richer than you ever imagined. Jim Jones said, drink this because I say you must die with me. Jesus said, drink this because I will die for you so that you can choose to live and to live and to live. We are the people to whom Jesus is saying, I abide in you. We are the people to whom Jesus brought life It is our job to continue to carry that life as burdensome as it sometimes is, as difficult as it is to comprehend, as confused as we might get on the path. Because so long as we choose life, so long as we choose the body and the blood of the one that died so that we might live, we have made the right choice. We choose We choose to draw the kingdom closer rather than push others away. We choose to say yes instead of no. We choose the body and blood, and we choose the community that comes with it, the whole community. We choose to abide in Christ. We, we choose life. Amen.